0: So I met Allison Kobayashi uh, through my partner, Colin, who met her when he was doing some editorial and um, programming work for an organization that does documentary art uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Uh, and it's called Union Docs. It's really wonderful. So it's a space for documentary art of all kinds. Uh, I'd say they focus mostly on documentary films. So they'll screen documentary films, often have conversations with the filmmakers or critics. Um, They also do a lot of documentary radio projects. Allison's spouse, Christopher Allen, is the founder of Union Docs. Um, Hmm. Allison uh, works there, but I think she does a little bit less now that she's seen a lot of success from her recent endeavor, which is called Say Something Bunny. And I really thought, you would like say Something Bunny, and so I uh, brought you to the show.
1: Indeed. <laughs> Can I ask you a few questions? Yeah. It's so interesting because one of the things I hope to talk to Allison about is the way her work, it exists in a place of overlapping kind of genres like documentary art, like Union Docs is sort of set up to work through, but then performance, um, which is a little bit different, and so I'm excited to talk to her about that before, I kind of like the idea of asking you, why did you think I was going to like say something funny, which I loved? Yeah, me too.
0: My first impulse, which I haven't quite figured out, was that it remi- like her work reminds me of Spalding Gray a little bit, which is who I know you mm-hmm. love, but it's weirdly also the opposite, right? Because she's not, these are not her stories. These are somebody else's stories, but it's something about the way the performative nature works, the way she's, I think, concerned with like permission, like giving the audience like the permission to like be a bit of a voyeur and like experience sort of some of these found objects that she's given a new life and like given us a permission to be a little Snoopy or a spy on, but it doesn't feel bad because she is so like charming and funny and clever. That permission, like just that idea is so central to your work.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. I'm also so excited to talk to her tomorrow. I'm sad that you can't physically be in the room because you are in Los Angeles now and Allison and I are both in New York. And I guess I wondered, are there things that you hope she and I talk about?
0: Right, that's a really tough question. (laughs) This is why you are the host of this podcast. (laughs) I can't really answer that exactly, but I will say that I've always felt like you and Allison have a similar kind of creative brain in a lot of ways. And I don't know how to put my finger on it, but I think some of it has to deal with like obsession. Um, Mm. I mean, say something bunny, the production of it, I don't know how long it took her, but I know... And having known her for a long time that she was working on this project and I didn't know what it was but it was oh it's this wire tape project and she was going somewhere to do research for this wire tape project for for a very long time <laughs> like whatever she's doing she's completely obsessed with it um and I think you know with your work too you you often turn to the same sort of concerns of your of your life, right? They're your obsessions. And I think Mm. Allison can also be sort of obsessive in in sort of her her research and what she's looking for when she's making new work.
1: Yeah, I love that answer because I feel very complimented that you think I'm obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) And a hard worker. I really I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, one more question that I'm sort of curious about. Do you think there's anything that listeners need to know or would be helpful for them to know about Allison.
0: Yeah. I mean, the things I will say about Allison is that I find her work very difficult to describe. And I think that mm-hmm. is just a strength of the work. So I don't, sometimes I don't know where to begin. I'm like, well, she's playing different people and it's found art. It's something you really have to experience, I guess, though I think she'll be great at describing it. And other than that, I just want to say that I think she's one of the kindest and most charming people. So, uh, you know, for folks who've maybe like seen the show in New York and are curious about the person herself, like she's, she's awesome. And um, that's why I wanted to bring her to Commonplace.
1: I'm really excited to try to like figure out how to describe what she does. I'm also Excited and worried about how to describe what she does without any visuals because we're going to be doing a podcast of it So that adds a whole other layer of difficulty to it, which I think is really interesting. Yeah (laughs) (laughs) So this is episode 59 with Allison Kobayashi and I am planning to record the conversation with Allison tomorrow September 20th 2018 Anything else you want to say, Christine?
0: I hope everybody enjoys the episode.
1: Awesome. But I have to get off the phone okay. for a very, very important reason, which is that I have to watch The Office with Judah before he goes to bed. Oh, say hi to Judah <laughs> for me. I promised him all day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. let's talk tomorrow or, or yeah. yeah, let's talk tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Okay. Good night. Bye. Night.
2: So I want you to start by describing say something bunny but I want to say that it is inherently a positive thing I feel about your work that it is hard to describe it and even more so with this particular project you've said you don't want people to know too much about it going in right but we have to let listeners have some idea what we're about to talk about right yeah okay so you must have some practice
3: it's still <laughs> developing. It's still something that I'm trying to figure out how to say in minimal words. But I would describe it as a one-woman performance that's based on a found audio recording from the 1950s, made on a wire recorder, which is kind of an extinct audio recording device. Hi,
4: I thank you very much, Juliet, for a wonderful dinner. Larry, I hope you'll come out to Philadelphia and have a good dinner with us. I right. I
1: surely will. Bunny. Mm-hmm. Larry, quietly say something, buddy. Say something. She takes her hand you Say your philosophy course. I'm um, amused. Oh, come on. Say something. No. I don't something. A sound sound oh,
3: off. the got something Sound off. And using this found audio recording that's very ordinary and very mundane of a, a New York family kind of hanging out. And the performance is trying to understand who they were, what they're talking about, what they ended up doing, trying to put the audience in that room. So that's kind of the content part of the performance. And the way that the performance happens is there's 25 people, you come into a room, you sit at a table or around the table, and each person in the audience is assigned one of the characters whose voice is heard on the recording.
4: Okay, next we have June Tenenbaum, 46 years old. David, are you coming to visit me when I get to Philadelphia? You're a neighbor, and you're also the mother of Bunny Tenenbaum. You have another daughter named Lynn who's not at this going away dinner. You're married to Sydney, 50. You're pretty quiet. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say much. And I think that's rubbed off on your daughter, Bunny, 20 years old. I'm a mute. You've just left the goodbye dinner. Sydney is driving you to a friend's house. You will not be appearing again in the recording. Stella, Shirley, Florence, and Lou, you'll arrive in act two. Okay, now let's go on to scene two. You're all sitting around the dining room table after dinner, having a coffee, maybe a cocktail. The time is approximately eight o'clock p.m. And the wire recorder, where is that? Why is this scene being recorded? we
1: have today the yeah. cabinet men with the
3: kitchen stuff we won't have for a week. Um. and so it's immersive in a sense where the audience is asked to almost play a role, however, they're not meant to speak out loud. they don't have to perform in any way. It's really just that they're a placeholder for these characters, and I talk to them as if they're almost an actor preparing for the role of playing this character and so the engagement of the audience is really me talking to you giving you your character motivations trying to help you understand these people by asking you to play them in a way temporarily that's kind of the best way i think i can describe it in a broad sense and then there's lots of little things but right i loved it oh, i
2: just thanks. and one of the things i loved was the way in which the audience is involved, but not put on the spot. Say Something Bunny is both a live performance, but it also involves many pre-recorded pieces and this like really interesting, unusual audience participation element. Your work previous to Say Something Bunny was less live performance. Right. Can you start by talking about like this shift towards this live show and what that's been like for you? Mm-hmm. Hey, listener, Rachel Zucker here. In case you're wondering what the heck is going on and think you're on the wrong flight, you're listening to episode 59 of Commonplace. You first heard me speak with Christine LaRusso, Commonplace producer, and now you're listening to me talk with Alison Kobayashi, visual artist and video and performance artist, about her immersive performance, Say Something Bunny. Inspired by Allison's work, we wanted to switch up our format and see what would happen if we didn't do our regular intro where I introduce the guest, beg for patrons, remind you of our website, give you context for the conversation. At the end of my conversation with Allison, I'll be back with some thoughts, sort of more director's cut style than podcast style, and I'll say more about this shift in format. Until then, please stick with us and keep listening.
3: To ask the audience to embody the character really comes from how I made work before Say Something Bunny. Mm. So a lot of my previous work is using found objects, taking that as a found narrative, and then trying to extract a story from it and... My way into these found objects was to dress up as the people who owned them, who were featured on them, who were talked about in them. So for example, I used to collect answering machines that people would donate to thrift stores. They'd accidentally leave the tape inside. And so I was like, I'm going to just collect the tapes, listen to them. And the first answering machine that I found in doing that belonged to this guy, Dan Carter. And the piece that I made was dressing up as each of the characters that left messages for him. Mm. So in a way, Say Something Bunny is very connected to that process of not speaking for the characters, like almost letting the voice of the character that's in the answering machine exist and just embodying them Mm. and trying to get to know them by stepping into their shoes I guess would be the, the phrase but yeah, just a different way of engagement that I had done in my own work and then in this, in Say Something Bunny, really asking the audience to do that and Yeah, most of my work previously was video, installation, illustration, and I'm still doing that and that still exists in Say Something Bunny. There are a lot of moments where I also dress up as characters or take on their personas live or in pre-recorded video. Say Something Bunny kind of just is all of that in one piece in a live piece where I'm the primary performer. Mm -hmm.
2: And where do you think that came from, like this desire to extract the story from these found objects and to embody the people in these kind of like amazing ways? Like how did you know to go looking for these answering machines? Mm -hmm. And and then once you had them, how did you, you know, what was the process by which you were like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to make. Right.
3: I think, well, I was in art school at the time. The school that I was in actually didn't have a devoted course for video art or performance at the time. It was really kind of painting, drawing, sculpture, design, stuff like printmaking. But I had a sculpture teacher that, and most of my teachers were very supportive and open-minded, but just let me kind of do what I wanted in a sculpture class Mm. or do video in a sculpture class. So I think just having that initial openness to explore different mediums within certain classes was the first thing but also it was just something that I had been doing already and it wasn't until I was in maybe second year university that I realized that what I enjoyed doing could be my practice like I had Mm. always gone to thrift stores I had always gone to flea markets and had always had an interest in objects that people discarded and very much so objects that were mundane Mm. and ordinary in a way and I think that's probably because I got that from my mom she always was interested in just looking and engaging in, with objects and I think that that was just something that I always would do with her and then did on my own but it was really the, just this combination of understanding for the answering machine tapes I had just been doing that already or hmm. and then like years later it became a project and my first video using a found object it was a letter that I had found And it wasn't until years later that I made it into a video. So I had a collection already. And then it was just the moment of transforming it into something else. And where were you in school? Because I think people might want to know where one could go to school
2: and have the experience where you're encouraged to work in so many interdisciplinary ways (laughs) and like transform what you're already doing and already interested in and already love into your art process.
3: Yeah, I went to University of Toronto at Mississauga, their Mississauga campus, but it was also a joint program with Sheridan College, which is, I think, mostly known for animation. Mm. But they had a joint program where you would do your theory at U of T and then you would do all of your studio practice classes at the college. So you do. That's where all of the amazing studios where you could get messy there. And I just spent all my time there and was just I think it was honestly just a very supportive faculty Hmm. That really just allowed me to do my thing. And I think that's why my work ended up being so multiple things at once and just making it and letting other people kind of decide where it falls. Uh, When we first brought Say Something Bunny to New York, we're like, it's performance art. And I think it is. that's really how I see it, just because I think that genre is so open in a way and then as people are coming to see it they're like it's theater it should be reviewed as a theater piece and then we're like yeah it is theater yeah Mm -hmm. it it can be theater and it can be all of these things in one
2: so so I know you grew up in Canada Mm -hmm. I don't want to, to say some essentializing comment about Canada versus the United States but I do wonder if there is perhaps something Canadian or more Canadian Um, about having a little less anxiety about what is this thing how do I present it how do I market it and more openness about well we'll figure out what it is and we'll also just figure out what how it's working what we like about it what Mm -hmm. we're doing I don't know does that seem at all in your experience accurate that there's like a more anxiety in the United States about like genre distinctions and figuring out what something is before you've even really made it.
3: I've been here for about 10 years and I feel like I've been within a community that's pretty mixed. Like I work at Union Docs, it's a center for documentary art and we screen films and they really are some of the things are almost people wouldn't think that it was documentary but there are elements of things that are documentarian about that work. And so I feel like I've always been surrounded by people that are interdisciplinary or aren't so locked down by that or feel kind of repressed by that. And then for, for Say Something Bunny, the form really also came out of that the curator, Kim Simon, she said, we can do a performance in an art gallery. It started off in an art gallery space, Gallery TPW in Toronto, and she was just so open to doing performance work which galleries don't always do because they're complicated they require a completely different setup in terms of staff ticketing you know all of these things that are a bit of a headache and they were just really willing to take that on and so I think that all of those elements allowed it to become what it is that Mm. we weren't no one really said it has to be this one thing it was in an environment where it could be what it what it was
2: yeah I mean, I that makes me wonder, is there any meaningful difference to you between theater
3: and performance art? I think audience expectation. Mm. And I think that that's why we don't want to say too much about what it is. Because mm-hmm. I think that when sometimes if you go to performance art, I don't think you expect the same experience that you do as theater. And mm. because it's so varied and it's kind of unpredictable and you don't know how you're going to be organized in space, even like, I think when you think of theater, you think of audience around performer in chairs, with performance, you might not even know if you get to sit down Mm -hmm. or something, or if you're moving through space. And so my favorite thing is when people just send their friend, and they just say, I'm not telling you anything, just go early. So you can sit at the table or something, or they give them like little pieces of advice, but Uh that they're really coming in, not having read anything just on trusting their friend that they would have liked this. I was just thinking as you were saying this, like I have urged so
2: many people (laughs) to go see, say something, Bunny, and I've I almost always use the phrase, just trust me, just trust (laughs) me, Um, and I think that kind of brings us back a little bit to this question of the particular kind of audience participation. At what point in the making of this production did you kind of come up with the idea of having? the members of the audience and like mm-hmm. if i'm giving away too much i don't know what to do it's i think it's fine
3: people okay. come in knowing different levels of okay things and if they're listening to okay. this conversation spoiler I alert
2: that- <laughs> go see it and then listen to the episode <laughs> right. how about that <laughs> um but yeah so you know you there's a script and so you i think so much of this is about audience expectation like all along the way it's like you get emotionally invested both with a little bit of fear but right. also you are very kind to the audience i feel you're very protective of the audience in the way that you have have set it up so i guess i'm wondering like at what point did that piece of it become important to you was mm-hmm. it early on or
3: i mean the whole process was 6 years the mm-hmm. first 4 years perhaps was just working on the transcription Understanding some of the cultural references, but the first four years, I didn't have their last name. So I had no idea who these people were, where they lived. I thought they might have lived in Brooklyn. I didn't know any details about them. And then found the census. Then I learned more about the people's actual lives. Christopher Allen, who's my collaborator and also partner, we were driving home. I think it might have been Thanksgiving from North Carolina And our best times of figuring out decisions in our life and our projects are on long drives where we can't really use the internet. We're in like rural areas and all we can do is talk and figure things out. Mm. So it was actually on that ride that we figured out we want to do a script, book work that people read and we want to cast them as the characters. All that happened within one car ride. And I think it was because I really wanted to make a book work as part of the project And also just as a way to combine some of the research that I was coming across in the characters for example the other reason why we ended up creating that script read-through environment was that one of the characters ends up becoming a playwright a screenwriter and so this act of people coming together for the first time to read his work was something that was part of his own experience in his life and so we the beginning we really were like this is perfect and Figuring out all the details of how that would work was much later, but it really was trying to capture this format that not only was relevant to the material that we were coming across in the research, but also that it just made sense. It was kind of this eureka moment. This is how we can do it. And did the table
2: come out of that? Like there's a really important physical setup Mm -hmm. um, in the room where most of the audience um, sits around a table mm-hmm. and you're often in the middle, mm-hmm. um, but then you kind of come out mm-hmm. and it's a g- very important part of the performance. Mm-hmm.
3: The table was, there were multiple iterations of what that could be. At first we were thinking it could be a bunch of folding tables set up in a square and it would almost, like, with, like cigarette ashtrays, almost like what he would have experienced in the 70s. Mm. Kind of that New York read-through actors, whatever. But then... We really liked the idea of the table also being a way of connecting the characters and that those relationships between characters are continuous and that a circle, like a curved surface, makes so much sense around the fluidity of the relationships versus a square, which is so, this is one family, this is one other family. The four sides didn't seem to make sense, so we went for the circular table because it was a continuous relationship, but also... Later, we are like, it's the wire. It's the wire recorder itself. We can base the design of the table on the wire. And that also we wanted the table to also be a container for all of the objects that are then revealed. And part of the performance, part of some of the performative actions that I do when I take on characters, but also I give each character often an object to kind of represent something that they're doing in the scene. And so those objects are also contained within the table. There's the performance
2: itself. There's the experience of being there, watching it. And then there's all this stuff that I think only happens afterwards mm-hmm. when you think about the experience that you've just had. I think your work is saying something very complex and not easily reducible about identity, about um, inhabiting other people's characters, about dressing up as someone. And I guess I was wondering like, how you're feeling particularly at this moment where there's a lot of important questions about who gets to pretend to be someone else and mm-hmm. are there limits to who you should pretend to be and and is that an act of empathy or appropriation and mm-hmm. you know your work is just raising all of those questions and in a very light-hearted and almost non-harmful uh, way mm-hmm. is how I, ca- I guess I can say it.
3: Mm-hmm. I think that that's something that has been part of my work for the whole time Mm -hmm. and taking on different characters it's a way of relating to other people and also just transferring that feeling of empathy is kind of like an overused word Mm -hmm. but it is part of it for me i think that the thing about the performance it's so dense i really make the audience do a lot it's also just a functional way to be able to get people to absorb a lot of information very quickly. Because in order for the performance to flow, they need to know a lot. They need to know where they are. They need to know the relations. And some of it can be kind of vague. You can just be like, I don't know which one of you is bunny, but you're over there. Because mm-hmm. there's obviously no connection to It's completely arbitrary if you're a man or a woman, if you're an animal or something. It's really about just getting people into the room and trying to understand what's happening in the recording on a level that's just not didactic. Mm -hmm. There's one moment where they're talking about Christmas presents and the aunt says, "Uh, I'm gonna give you a petticoat. And the other aunt says, wait, in the background. (laughs) It's such a small moment, but Mm -hmm. if if you feel the character, if you're that character, you're so much more attuned to everything that they say and how something might be funny. But if you weren't that character, I don't know if that would be as humorous in the same way. So it's really, I think that the casting thing really functions as a way to connect to this character on like a joyful emotional sense, Mm. to understand what's funny about them, their sense of humor. You become more aware of that, I think, and how they're relating to the other characters.
2: What's it like for you to be unlike in Dan Carter, unlike in your, you know, previous work to be doing this night after night? Mm-hmm. And be there and watch the response from the
3: audience and and have to perform it. I think we're approaching like 250 performances at this point. So it's it's a learning experience just to learn On a basic level, just how to not be sick, Mm -hmm. how to treat my body a certain way, how to eat at certain times so that I have energy when I do the performance, sleeping enough, just basic bodily things, but also just understanding how to perform it changes. Like we took a break in August and when I came back, it felt very different from how it felt before I left because I had three weeks off and it felt new again in a way. I think that sometimes you you think it's completely what the audience brings to it. But as I do it more, it's so much about just how I'm pacing myself, how about being present, about letting the audience be how they are or not expecting them to laugh at certain moments. Every audience is different. And I'm still learning how to not rush it, how to figure out what it is to be a performer and just to train it's body training, it's being present, all of that stuff, learning how to do that. And
2: how did you learn how to do that? Like, did you train for that part of it? I just started
3: doing it. Uh-huh. It's really just doing, this is my only experience. So I haven't really taken any classes. We were thinking of doing some voice classes or something. And I think I'd still be open to doing that, but it's really just learning from doing it. And I still have so much more to learn. Mm-hmm.
2: And how, how are you feeling about being more visible, like both because you are literally physically present in these performances, but also because even though it is a small audience um, and it's not 1,200 people a night, um, this is your mo- most successful, well-known mm-hmm. project so far. And so you're kind of in a different place than
3: you were before this mm-hmm. project. How, how are you feeling about that? What's interesting is that because it's only 25 people. I like recognize people who've come to say something funny and I remember doing a show and then the next day being in Park Slope and getting lunch with friends and I walked out and then I saw this woman who's with her baby and I was like Bob Lamond and it was just this (laughs) like it's funny because I always think of people as their characters and I don't actually get to meet them but Mm. it's funny because I feel weirdly connected to the audience Mm -hmm. and I feel like even though I don't get to talk to them or get to know them that much if I saw them on the street I feel like I have something to talk to them about they're no longer strangers Mm. because we've like spent this time together and I've looked at their eyes at their faces I feel like there's been something there when you think about
2: your next project I don't know if you already are working on something else. To me it seems Nothing impossible
3: specific. There's kind of inklings, but it's there's not like this is my next project. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you think at all about whether you
2: want your next project to have a similar level of exposure or more or less or is that not even really part of your your way of thinking about it?
3: I think it's always just what it is. Mm. I think for me, it's always project to project, what it needs to be for what it is. I don't even know if it would be performance necessarily. It could be a video or it could be a set of drawings or something. Mm. Um, And I think that there's just like a completely different set of expectations depending on what project you're doing. I don't think everything has to be like reviewed I feel like it can be really unhealthy if you have that expectation for every project that you do and I think when I was a lot younger and like had like when Dan Carter was shown at festivals I was like I felt so much pressure I was Mm. like I don't know the next thing is not gonna be as good and I'm never and how that can be kind of like crippling at at some time and so I'm just kind of like this is a special thing and it was a six-year project and I think knowing that Mm. and feeling very like happy that it has taken off in the way that it has, but also understanding it was six years. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that from a project that you make in six months or whatever. I mean, so that investment, I think, paid off, but there's also not necessarily that expectation for every single thing.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Which I think is, I agree with completely. I also have a lot of empathy for artists of any age but particularly like more emerging artists or artists like earlier in their careers for feeling like needing to prove to themselves that they've reached a certain place whatever it is for them I mean either being able to support themselves, mm-hmm. um, being able to have a certain level of recognition that allows them to keep going mm-hmm. um, or to justify, you know, the time, energy, money that they're spending on this. And I don't know how, how do you hold on to that knowledge? Because I think it's very hard to do that when you're either between projects or you are comparing yourself to other artists mm-hmm.
3: or, I mean, there's so much insecurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, expectations of yourself can be both really crippling at sometimes, but it also can like push you to make better work, take it yourself more seriously. Mm. I think that having this work has allowed me to take myself more seriously and kind of be like, I can support myself in being an artist or, which is special. I mean, a lot of people do it. What's nice about what we've been doing is that it's, pretty independent. Um, Mm -hmm. We've been able to create the system ourselves. We're producing it ourselves. The space is our own. We're not really having to deal with the pressure of outsized sources telling us what they need from us. It's really, if we need to take a month off, we can plan that. Mm -hmm. And that's up to us. And so that's been immense in terms of how we're creating this path of the life of this performance and that it really can be what we want it to be. That's an amazing luxury, I think, that we have, that a lot of artists don't have because they're dealing with art- gallerists or something or mm. certain deadlines or, yeah, things around funding, around space. I wanted to ask you a question about Christopher Allen, your partner. Mm-hmm.
2: So first of all, what's it like working together um, creatively? And i <laughs> what are your feelings about Marina Bramovitz? Um be-
3: Ulay, or is that... <laughs> his name or... yes
2: I forget Ula but I I don't know if you've seen the video of them just slapping each other across the <laughs> face <laughs> so there it's just this like actually quite long video where they're sitting I think they might be kneeling and they're facing each other they're quite close to each other and one of them just slaps the other one hard in the face and then the other one does it mm-hmm. and they just do this over and over and mm-hmm. over again. <laughs> this does not seem to be the model for your collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are a f- sort of famous collaborators. And I was just wondering, you know, who your models are for this kind of work, who your inspirations are, which is not really the same as models. And then also particularly, like, um, do you have models for or kind
3: of thoughts about collaborating with your uh, mm-hmm. intimate other? mm mm-hmm. It's something that we've done for years in different ways. So Christopher runs Union Docs and I also work for him. Mm-hmm. And then he's helped me on previous projects and has assisted me more. So the role was more like in a, like helping me with camera stuff. With Say Something Bunny really came on as a collaborator and like as a creative collaborator. We would sit down and write together. I'd do drawings. I'd send them to him and then would like color them or something. So he was like always present. I feel like it really, it wasn't going to happen until he came on. Mm. And so just having a person who was invested in it, for me, it was really like, I really needed him to be there with me, to think through this with me, to have someone to talk to about it and work on it. And, you know, physically program. Also, he did the technical design. And so I think that I didn't have to think about this whole element of it because he was like, I'm taking care of it. Mm. That was transformative to have just someone that you completely trust to take care of part of it, but also that they're like writing it with you. Yeah, anyway. I don't know if there was like a specific model. I think that people, a lot of couples or people who are seeking a couple are like, I'd love to work together. And they really don't know what that's like. And I think it's very idealized. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it would be better if you worked with someone and then fell in love with them would probably be an easier setup versus if you fall in love with the person, then force yourself to work together. Um, It's, it's not easy for sure. Hmm. Do you and Josh work together a lot?
2: We really haven't. And it's a really good question. Um, So, our 50th episode was called Inside Commonplace. And so I had um, my youngest son interview me for the introduction. And I had um, this fabulous poet, Yin Yi interview me. And then Josh and I did a segment. And we did quite a long one. And I mean, it was over an hour. And for that, I cut those down more than I've ever edited anything else. (laughs) So it was like maybe 15 minutes or less. But the process of both being miked and having a recorded conversation was extremely profound. And we go to couples therapy and the couples therapist records us with a video camera. And I've not heard of that before. Oh, it's really interesting. Um, That's so interesting. <laughs> I know, right? You're like, I want those tapes. I know. I'm like, <laughs> what is her archive? So is she, she, she says anyone? she doesn't, keep the archive she records over them they're just for her to rewatch, and it makes sense on some level like I'm not saying everybody should do it this way but it actually feels like a really profound gift from her like because she's able to pay attention in the moment but then she can look at the tape and I think that she must see really different things in the tape Mm -hmm. but it's like really not product oriented like actually we went uh, yesterday and I noticed that the camera was like totally (laughs) tilted to the side and I thought should I mention that to her and then I was like no because it's not you know it's not Mm -hmm. but it it is really fascinating so anyway this is a long digression but I said well maybe we should like do a project um, where we like once a week we record an hour of audio together and we did two (laughs) <laughs> and then we stopped I would like to go back to it I actually think it would be a very profound experience I don't know if you you know who Esther Perel is um but she came to say something funny and I was kidding. very
3: starstruck
2: I, it was you like recognized her or you saw her name on the list
3: I recognized her okay but she I was very I listened to her podcast and love it yeah and I was just like oh my god and she was right beside me and yeah So it was
2: like a little bit based on that idea as well. But like what would happen if we both were like, how does the microphone, the knowledge that you're recording and the, Mm -hmm. and the expectation that there could be a future audience for this change the dynamic between the two of us? Where's the line between private and public? How Mm -hmm. does it change the way we speak to Mm -hmm. each other? I feel like when we recorded for commonplace, we accessed a part of our relationship that's present, but that feels younger and more kind of connected mm-hmm. and attentive and like flirtatious in a way. Mm-hmm. Not that, that those things aren't there at all, but I just think it's different. You know, you don't just kind of fall asleep in the middle of the conversation when you have a microphone in right. front of you.
3: You're accountable. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I'm thinking about the audience and, have you read Wayne Kest? Is it Kestenbaum? Yeah,
2: I, I always yeah, say Kestenbaum. Yes, I have. It's, he, I was fr- it so he was my he was my professor as an undergraduate. He, he's, he's like
3: one of my favorite. So people. great that book! I love it so much. I've been like, you ha- everyone needs to read this book. But it's just talk. The point where they're talking about like how it works that you need like the person that's receiving the humiliation, the hum- the guy, the person who's like the bully or whatever, and then the spectator, the witness, mm. and then so in that situation, it's like you have the audience, you have the witness, like it's a, that spectator, the audience creates like a completely different dynamic. Yeah.
2: And I don't know what it feels like really to have a live audience, which is something I'm really interested in exploring Mm -hmm. more. I mean, I do know what it's like when I read my work. um, And I actually think that's an essential part of Mm -hmm. being a poet to me. And this is something I also wanted to ask you about, like, in terms of humiliation, Mm -hmm. for me, I've always had like a lot of baggage around performance and live performance in part because my mother was a storyteller. And it was something that I, you know, grew up with every week, if not more. And somehow I haven't given myself permission to occupy that space, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I really need to and want to. Your work, you know, your body is present, your voice is present, you inhabit these different characters, there's like a level of exposure that is so much more um, present and potentially humiliating, Mm -hmm. I feel like in your work Mm -hmm. than in mine. But then there's also a way in which the reverse is true because I feel like when you start with a found object or a found story or these, you know, the wire recording, and mm-hmm. then you inhabit that. I mean, so you, say something, Bunny is the story of you right. working on this, but it sort of appears to be
3: about,
2: about those yeah. people, and so I wonder if that is your safety zone in a way like I think that for me there has been safety in the fact that it's poetry which most people find incomprehensible (laughs) so even if I'm saying something totally autobiographical with total frankness and clarity people are like I just couldn't understand it It was poetry (laughs) but is the persona part of your work do you feel like there's like some safety there for you
3: we figure it out through me to be able to perform on our own terms right so we also created different types of persona within my one character so I would go into these different zones so at one point I would be a researcher character or a director character Mm. and those roles seem like it's the same person doing it but it was just different ways of me to figure out how I'm communicating this information and how I want to do it maybe this one's more straightforward and this one really needs to really be engaging and talk to you in a certain way and tell you this is what your motivations are so we just created different personas that I could play as myself hmm. it is funny because the performance is me as myself so as a way it's like it's very laid back I think I think it would be much more difficult to have done this performance it's two and a half hours it's one person if I wasn't just having that ability to be casual I, like, mess up words a lot, you know, that happens a couple times in a performance, but I feel like we create a dynamic with the audience where they accept that I'm a person in a room with them, mm-hmm. and so I think that creating that sense of, we're all people, it's fine, I'm trying to be, like, on a different level here and performing for you, but I also, it's okay mm-hmm. if I say the wrong thing. How much improvisation is there in any given, given show? not much I mean we really do try and stick to the lines that are written but sometimes people talk back like sometimes people they get into their character and then they're like I am sick today this is so fun and then we're like create space for that respond but also don't necessarily encourage that to happen too much but at the same time if, if an audience member talks sometimes it actually puts everyone at ease because they're they're just like oh cool it's comfortable like this is casual. Like if you have an audience member talking in a thing, sometimes people feel more, okay, cool.
2: Have you ever had someone just like cross the line, like in your like, wait, Not t- yet. be quiet, you know, or.
3: No, I mean, if people talk during it, it, it because it's such a small room, it is kind of distracting. Mm-hmm. But I don't really police that. I do feel like other audience members like look over at them in kind of an annoyed way. And then eventually they get the hint. But you learn a lot from people when you sit in a room with them and perform to them. It's mm-hmm. really funny. Who gives eye contacts? Who feels uncomfortable about that? And then also having to respond to that. Sometimes if someone's very shy, I won't go as close to them. Mm. And so it's really trying to like respond and understand what people's needs are. Or if someone's really performative you can really play with them and it can be like so the improvisation it's not so much that the lines are changing but every performance the dynamics different depending on what the audience brings so you can it can be like really playful or sometimes it really needs to be much more like don't worry it's okay I'm not gonna do too much to you let's not look at them I feel
2: like that dynamic could be like a drug You know, like I'm really curious. We're going to have to do like a a check back in with Allison like, you know, two years from now and find out because I feel like in your next projects, if you don't have that immediate feedback connection, Mm -hmm. I just really wonder, are you going to feel that it's a relief and that it Mm -hmm. opens you up to different kinds of Mm -hmm. uh, work? Or are you going to be like, I got this bug and now I have to find a way to get
3: that feeling. Yeah. It's nice because it keeps the performance fresh because it's different every time because the audience is always bringing something different to it that it's fun to do. And it's I get to look at people. I get to interact with the way I can not imagine doing a performance that really is just like you're almost blinded by the light. You can't see anyone. It's the same thing every day. That must be a lot more difficult because it's not nourishing, I think. It might be. Mm -hmm. But to me, I do find that I get to be with people. I'm experiencing time with people. It's Mm. really nice. It feels very rewarding. And then they clap for me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen um, Nanette by Hannah Gadsby? Yeah, it's
3: great. I'm like, you need to watch this. So yeah, Yeah, and I keep
2: sort of saying the same thing. So I had several students email me when it first came to the Soho Playhouse and were like you have to see this. And so it was sort of similar to, you know, trust me, trust me. I went to see it with Josh live. It was an incredible experience. And I couldn't separate what was incredible about it from the content from the, that night's performance, mm-hmm. from the venue. And then I watched it on uh, on Netflix and it was very similar. But the experience was really different. Mm-hmm. Both are incredible, you know. She's not doing it at Soho Playhouse now, yeah. so you have to watch it. But yeah. it really was a completely different feeling, both in terms of the lighting, the size of the audience. Mm-hmm. There was something so uncomfortable about being in such a small theater and feeling like she could see us and sensing Josh's. Kind of response to it and my own Mm -hmm. response to it, um, that I I really think about that a lot. And I felt that way also um, when I used to go see Spalding Gray. Now I feel so sad that all those Spalding Gray performances are not really available. Many of them, I guess, weren't recorded or the recordings aren't available. So I guess that's my other question like, do you have enough recording of, say, Something Bunny? Will you release? a video? When's your Netflix special (laughs) coming out?
3: (laughs) I don't think it would translate Mm -hmm. because it really is about the character assignment Mm. and embodying that in a way. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a big part of it that's really lost in the recording. We took documentation of it at the gallery TPW and then first we were like, do we try and pitch this to people? And then we're like, do we send them the video? And that we're like, no, we have to like set it up and then invite them to come see it. And Mm. so it's really, I think it needs to be live. Mm -hmm. But And do you think it needs to stay small? I personally feel like it needs to be small. We've had people being like, make it to have rows and rows of people and they can all be Juliet's or something. And conceptually, I think maybe because I came from a visual art background and my decision-making isn't necessarily based on like what's economically feasible but like what conceptually is sound for this mm-hmm. and that you know it's limited to 25 people because that's how many characters there are and it can't be more than that mm-hmm. I think we could experiment and just see what it's like to have more people but I don't think that I'd want to like commit to that being the only way we need to try it out
2: well right because you're saying you only saw net recorded right and it was very powerful yeah. for you so I'm saying to you it was even better. Yeah. You know, when it was. How live. is that possible? I, I know, it know, was it different. But it. But yeah. I'm so glad that she recorded it yeah. and that it's available.
3: You are able to access people who aren't able to go to the, you know, yeah. go see you live. To physically be in the same space as your audience is a lot of work.
2: Mm hmm. Well, it's so interesting. You know, my dad listens to every single episode. So he's probably listening now if I keep this in. Hi, Dad. (laughs) Um, And he's so supportive of the podcast. He's very excited about it. Um, He's always been very supportive of my writing. But, you know, the way that he communicates to me how much he likes the podcast is that at least five times he has called to say, are you sure you don't want to make a book of it? <laughs> because he really comes from a background where writing a book is really just like the best thing a person can do. Mm-hmm. It like it just it's almost like you don't fully exist unless you've published a book. Mm-hmm. And and I I do understand that feeling and but, you know, we've had the funniest conversations where he's like, yeah, you could just do, like, an anthology. Like, you could get a transcript and you could put them all together and and then it would be available to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Dad, it is available to people. <laughs> it's a podcast. It's, like, it's more available than any book right. would ever be. Like, books are going to, and he's like, I know, I know, but don't you want it to be a book so people could read it? And I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. Um. But I, I understand, you know, first of all, Every medium, every venue, every sort of technical iteration has a different kind of person or different audience that that you're able to reach or who's going to be receptive. And and I do really like the idea of translating things for different kinds of Mm -hmm. audiences. But I also feel like Mm -hmm. part of what makes Say Something Bunny so fabulous is that it's also really true to what is functionally and conceptually feasible and in that setting. So you don't feel like it's a a book adapted to a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But okay, this is a question I've asked but not asked you and let you answer, which is who are your people? Like who are the performance artists or the artists that you – have been most inspired by Mm -hmm. or or um, that you model your own work on if there are people like that
3: I mean Sophie Kell that you brought up Mm -hmm. uh, she I just love how she thinks and makes work Leanne Shapton is this amazing she makes books she also is an illustrator I I feel like the life that I most want to have is the life of an illustrator that's making work in response to their own experience Uh, she made a book that The format of the book is an auction catalog and it's all of the objects that this couple kind of collected together in their relationship Mm. and it just is pictures and descriptions and you get an understanding of their entire relationship through the objects that they kind of made together or were part of their story and narrative as a couple. Someone would be like Invitation for Nora and Jane's Halloween party from 2001, where they both attended, or something, a photograph of them together. So it would be uh, another thing, would be salt shakers that the couple would always steal from restaurants, and it's just like this collection of salt shakers or something. And so it was just this format of a way to tell a story, a way to tell a narrative that was unconventional, but also makes the person who's reading it create the story in their imagination and connect these things it's a gradual a revelation in the mind of the reader and then I love Myra Coleman
2: I was just gonna ask you
3: I love her so much and she came to the performance and I was against our now she I would recognize anywhere yeah I just love how she just documents life and the ordinary things and brings beauty to it whenever I'm working I have one of her books around and but it's yeah it's this response to your life and mm-hmm. making work from that, that I think is really inspiring.
2: This couple that Leanne Shapton writes about, are they, are they a real, is it's it, a fiction. It's fictional. Yeah. And, and so that is one question I also have been meaning to ask you, which mm-hmm. is like the people on the wire recorder are real. And yeah. Dan Carter was real. How important is it to you that even if it's a found object, that it be connected to a real person or be nonfiction on some mm-hmm. level?
3: It's funny because I feel like, say something bunny, it really is delving into archives and trying to research real people. At the same time, even though it's based on a real object, it's based on real material, a lot of it is fictive in a way Mm -hmm. because whenever you don't have the person there, it becomes fiction in a sense. You have, like history is fiction in so many ways. It's people connecting the dots and trying to imagine what happened because we don't have the people who experienced it still alive to tell us what had happened. And even if people are alive and tell us what happened, they're making stuff up because they want to tell a certain narrative. And so it's interesting because I feel like nonfiction always has fiction in it and vice versa. Like the story of like Leanne, the book, it's based on two fictional characters, but some of the objects are her objects, her collections of salt shakers that she and her partner had, which becomes part of the fiction, Mm -hmm. but it's still also part of a person's reality that makes the fiction work because it's based in reality. It's based in an experience. So it's like, those things are always so intertwined to me Mm -hmm. that, I mean, also just like the documents. I think that's so funny is like David, one of the characters, a lot of the information that I found about him was from his Cornell yearbook updates, which he obviously wrote and sent in, which are telling his life story in a very grandizing way, only the positive things, you Mm. know? So it's like all these documents and these ways that we create our own mythologies are so intertwined with fiction.
2: Okay, yeah, I completely agree. And yet I wonder how much of kind of like the charge or the compulsion Or just like even the choice of project um, or the energy around it for you comes from the fact that somewhere along the way, even though there's so much mythologizing and fiction making, Mm -hmm. that there was someone Mm -hmm. who lived How important is it to you that this is a documentary Mm -hmm. process in some way or do you think maybe your next project um, will just be totally
3: from the imaginative realm? I think I, I think that just for my working process it's not so much that it's something that existed in the real world. I just really like adapting things and working with something that exists and for me it's really about taking something that's rather curious and figuring it out. And Mm -hmm. I like that process. And so something that doesn't have all the answers embedded into it. I I think that for me, that's why I'm attracted to these little found mysteries Mm -hmm. is because there's work for me to do in that versus me just sitting down and making something up from scratch. Also, for a lot of my projects, I use the whole thing. So if we listen to the entire audio, there's parts where Most people, I think, would edit out sections because they're difficult to hear. It's just silence. There's just like a couple of minutes of silence in the middle. But I really like taking those moments as like challenges for how can I make a story around this or what's happening here? Why is it quiet? And I think that that's for me, like, kind of the funnest part is just letting something exist in the form that it is. If it's boring, trying to make that interesting. And that's where it's like the challenge of being a storyteller, I think is really exercised or something in those moments of making something boring into something that's profound, kind of. Right. Like including the mistakes or, Mm -hmm.
2: you know, um, having a kind of limit on your own process, like Mm -hmm. a rule, you know, and and then what do you do with that piece that doesn't seem to fit? You know, I'm going to say something that maybe I totally shouldn't say. (laughs) I feel kind of off today. I feel like I'm talking too much. Like my questions are really uh, rambling. And then <laughs> later we're going to have to be like, oh my God, why did you talk so much? How are we going to edit this? I'm going to tell you why I think I'm <laughs> so off right
3: now. I'm changing from one therapist to another. I know you mentioned that. I did. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, oh my god, Because you're we scheduling it, oh, which right. I was like, that is an intense thing.
2: I just can't even describe even to myself how incredibly disruptive this is Mm -hmm. my previous therapist I had seen off and on um for like 20 years yeah so today I did something that I don't know if this is good or not but I brought all of my books Mm -hmm. to the new therapist and I said I really want to show these to you and I lay them out on the Mm -hmm. on the floor in front of her and I mean, I think she knew that I was a writer, but we'd never talked about it in this, like, like, I don't know, maybe our sixth session or something. And so I put them out, and and she was, you know, very wonderful. She's a really good therapist, (laughs) Uh, thank God. But she said, so do you want me to read – I I don't remember the word she used. She didn't say, like, all of this, but, you know (laughs) – I just burst into tears. I just totally couldn't stop crying. I couldn't even figure out why I was crying. And I think it was partly like, yeah, of course I want you to read all of this, you know. And I do often have the feeling that like if someone says to me, oh, how are you doing? I want to say, well, here are all of my books and here are (laughs) the unpublished books. And so you read these and then if you still have questions, Mm -hmm. you can ask me, how are you
3: doing? Mm -hmm.
2: Which is impossible. You can't go through life, you know, bringing a tote bag full of your own books. And also, just as you Mm -hmm. said, the books are not exactly how I am or who I am. There's all kinds of, you know, fictions, you know, unintentional, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's art. So it's it's not like, you know, it's one person's perspective in a very particular way. Anyway, why does this have to do with anything that we're talking about. It's I,
3: very connected. It does feel it's like that. It's funny because I think that that's part of something that I've been thinking about in this research is how much do people's work help you get to know them? Mm-hmm. And how do you get to know a person or an artist specifically, I think, through the work that they're producing, the plays they write? And I feel like, let say something funny, like I kind of say... I think I know this about him because he wrote this in a play. And so I think that in a way that you're bringing that to your therapy session, and you're like, this is how you get to know me. Mm-hmm. Is This is how I kind of want to be remembered is through what I've published, you know. It's so complicated, though, too,
2: because as soon as I saw them all on the floor, I thought, wow, I'm really, really proud of having like spent my life doing mm-hmm. this and i'm really ashamed like it was both of them <laughs> just right there at the same exact mm-hmm. moment like these books represent minutes hours years yeah. of time that i didn't do other things like love my children enough or you know go out on date night with josh or whatever it was you know call my friend you know whatever like at the end of the run whenever it's going to be you will have spent how many nights a week four nights four nights a
3: week for over five hours yeah each night over (laughs) yeah
2: you know that's what you did with Mm -hmm. your time and six years making it Mm -hmm. you know and i when it's you (laughs) I can feel grateful and appreciative and like awestruck and excited when it's me. I have moments where I can feel like, well, you know, I did offer something to other people and to the Mm -hmm. world. But there's a lot of bad voices (laughs) like, really, that's what you did? (laughs)
3: I feel like you shouldn't feel any shame because also when you're not spending time doing these things that you feel like you should have been doing, those people are also potentially doing their things and giving, you know, they can be making their stuff. Right. If I meet people that I really like, then I want to work with them on something Mm -hmm. like that's kind of like I like the idea of finding a person that you connect with And doing something productive. And I think that that's what this podcast is doing. It's like you're not just having a conversation. You're like, we can have a good conversation. And I think people might want to listen to it. Mm -hmm.
2: And I was thinking, too, when you were saying about that feeling of wanting to make something with someone. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, I'm getting to a point in my life where I kind of don't want to make anything alone anymore. (laughs) Yeah, and it's lonely. (laughs) It's so lonely. And it's also, I just feel like... um, it doesn't access the part of me that most needs to be accessed Mm -hmm. in order to like really make stuff that feels important. And the podcast does feel like making something together. And then all the different kinds of like collaborations. And I think I went into being a poet because I thought it was something you did alone. And it was for me for a long time. And now I just don't want to do anything alone.
3: Yeah. Are you writing with people or so i
2: co-edited two anthologies with ariel greenberg who has not been on this podcast it's just so <laughs> funny because she's like my writing partner sister almost yeah. um and then we wrote a book together home birth where we really went back and forth and back and forth and you can't even tell who's speaking and we're trying to work on another book together and we're passing back and we have this google doc that we sort of add to and the first book a lot was about birth and female friendship and hybridity and what we're working on now is kind of about like pre and perimenopause Mm -hmm. um, but like just everything that's happening in our lives and so like we start when we date our entries we also will say like day five and it's always like the day of our cycle (laughs) and and I have this idea that we'll do it until we both reach menopause
3: that's awesome
2: (laughs) and I've never seen a discussion like that between you know two women about everything but we're having a really hard time Keeping up with the project. Like both mm-hmm. our lives have sort of separated more yeah. than they did when we were pregnant. So I'm struggling with that a little bit. And I think that's partly why when I imagine this sound project, like I picked something that I absolutely cannot do alone. Mm-hmm. Well, my goal, which I also just realized this second, is to make something that people say is a little bit hard to describe. <laughs> But trust me, just listen to it. Mm -hmm. I think you'll like it, you Mm -hmm. know, or I think, you know, it's kind of cool. It's Mm -hmm. doing something that I'm interested in, Mm -hmm. which is really exactly brings us all the way back to how I feel about your work. And I think that, yeah, I think that your work is like really sustaining for me, both uh, from the perspective of audience Um, It was, like, super entertaining, and it was really fun to bring Josh there. And But also, I think, as a maker, like, to remember, and I think this is very, very hard inside the world of poetry, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's hard in any artistic world where you have been in Mm -hmm. it for a while. Like, I forget that the world doesn't have to be so narrow, and I can be super uncomfortable and not know what I'm doing and try something Mm -hmm. I feel like your work like keeps bringing that up Mm -hmm. you know over and over again Um, and even though I do feel that way to some extent like every book I've ever written I'm like I have no idea how to write a book no idea (laughs) it always appears that everybody else knows what they're doing (laughs) (laughs) and I feel that I should know what I'm doing and I think that that feeling is really antithetical to
3: being energized by, by a new project yeah I've had so many conversations with friends of also just like the feeling of like, I'm a fraud. Like if you get a residency and you're like, oh my God, all these people are like so amazing. And I, I tricked them into letting me in, you know, totally. I it, it takes a long time to get over that feeling. And like, you can get over it for a while and then you're like, then you get something and then you're like, oh my God, you know, it's such a funny thing that everyone feels that men and
2: women and yeah. It's really really fascinating. I also think that that is one of the real good reasons to work with other people Mm -hmm. because I think that you're always gonna have those moments but you don't usually have them at the same exact time as all the other people who are (laughs) working on your project so there's usually someone who's like hey listen Um, Okay, wait, Spalding Gray. Do you know who that is? Do you care? I
3: I haven't seen his entire body of work. I've I've only seen video of him performing some of his pieces.
2: I mean, I saw his work before I'd ever published a book, and I think that I definitely had moments where I just thought, that's what I want to do. And I couldn't even exactly explain what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew that I wanted to have some... Connection to a live audience, some connection to performance, but not—he's, you know, he's not a stand-up comedian. He's not really a storyteller, but of course he is. You know, it's—he's not really a writer, but—but I think that somehow along the Mm way, I never—I sort of didn't allow myself to go in that direction, and then I think also didn't turn out great for him in certain ways, Mm -hmm. and I think I was also pretty scared of the the kind of exposure you know, that, that he and Marina Bramovitz too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're, they're so different in their work, but I guess that's like a question Two I have two, two questions that are sort of related to that. You talked about sort of keeping your body healthy and having to do that, but like, are there ways in which you also protect yourself emotionally or keep yourself strong either in the choice of projects, um, or in the way that you kind of, perform or live your life when you're not performing or you know a lot of these a lot of performance artists are pretty fucked up (laughs) (laughs) what how are you gonna work on that
3: (laughs) what's your plan i don't have a plan i just have to be fucked up um i think i think that also like being grounded so i'm doing this performance but i'm also working at union doc still Mm -hmm. which is christopher space and it's just nice to be around people and work with people and just for one day a week and then sometimes I do like additional days every once in a while but it's just nice to be like not just performing to also be doing something else and to be part of the team there is really I think helps me stay not completely like just in a bubble of say something bunny mm-hmm. I need to do other things I need to be part of other communities as well mm-hmm. um, it's interesting this Balding Gray thing and like being like I want to be like that I feel like I have the same feelings with, like, certain people. And I think what it is, it's not that, like, you want to do what they're doing. It's just that they're doing something that only they can do is, and is so purely them. Yeah. And I think that that's what we want is, like, to make something that is so you. And I think that that's kind of what's inspiring about seeing those people, like, the Bjorks or whatever. It's, like, its yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just so it's so unique because it's not trying to be something else and I think that that's just like such an inspiring thing to try and attain or work towards
2: I think that's true and (laughs) one caveat to that which is that I think that I'm not sure what I believe about whether we're kind of hardwired to like temperamentally live our lives a certain way Mm -hmm. and that like you know the process of developing as an artist is kind of accepting what kind of work you can make that's really your work to mm-hmm. make and and sort of getting you know have experimenting and pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. and seeing you know trying on different things but ultimately doing that in part to like get closer and closer to what's characteristic about your process mm-hmm. your work what you have to say who you are as an artist but then there's another part of me that's like, yeah, but what if you decide that you're, like, really a jerk? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to – I think that my fantasy of Myra kalman's life – I mean, I can't draw, so mm-hmm. it, it's a little bit easier for me to just want more than anything to be Myra Kalman, But I also think that there's a way in which her – artwork presents a persona of the artist that seems like a kind connected person in the world who's paying attention who is feeling things very deeply but also like has to get up and get out of bed and Mm -hmm. like not just lie in a heap and cry all Mm -hmm. the time and Spalding Gray for a lot of reasons like you know, had a certain kind of intensity and mental health issues and history of trauma, that's who he was mm-hmm. and he needed to, in a way, embrace it. Or whether he could have, by choosing a different medium <laughs> or a different content or mm-hmm. a different you know, like, what if I decided I'm not going to write any autobiographical poems anymore, I'm going to write a whole book, Uh, I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my life, you know, doing theater, let's say, because saying someone else's words is going to be really important and healing to me in this certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I'm going to write a a book of persona poems in which I inhabit, like Mm -hmm. other people. And that's going to make me a more ethical person, a more pleasant person, a better mother, a better wife, a better teacher, yeah. a more interesting artist, or is it going to be like Eric Clapton qu- quitting cocaine? <laughs> Do you know all the answers? Mm-mm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's I think it's like what's healthy for you too. I mean, it's not always the time to make work as well mm. Mm-hmm. Like, you kind of have to, like, go through different phases. You can't always just be outputting stuff. You need to... My sister's like, everyone's talking about self-care all the time. Self-care. Uh, it's funny because you're, like, talking about being an artist or something affects, like, your other behavior. Like, there's... I finish the performance it's like late and then I'm like waiting for the subway or something and I'm just like I'm just gonna look at Instagram and then I just there's like a moment where I feel self-conscious like if someone who's just at the performance is also on the subway and it's like you see this person who's in this performance and it's like we're all connected and then I just am sitting at the subway like scrolling Instagram like Uh just kind uh of like a mindless thing but I don't know it's like you can't be an artist all the time right sometimes you just need to like relax and be a normal person and just do the things that make you feel like I'm caught up with that or I don't know right right
2: yeah okay last question usually I say like well what are you working on next but I sort of asked you that Mm -hmm. um I know you said you had like seeds is that
3: something you want to talk about or not or I mean it's not there's nothing that's really like there's always like tons of things and tons of potential and like little projects, something that I'm doing a performance in January and I haven't started making the work yet. And I kind of have to see, it might be about a person, one of our neighbors and we'll just see how that goes. Mm-hmm. I right now I'd love for it to happen. And I kind of have an idea of like interviewing someone because this woman's an amazing storyteller. I've never really made a piece about a person. It's usually has started with an object and then imagining them but there's just something very special about her mm-hmm. that I I mean just interested in talking to her and getting to know her and see where it goes and then the project can kind of like happen out of that it's I don't think I usually go into things with like a plan mm-hmm. of how it's gonna end all the time it's often working with a thing and then seeing how that turns into a project or responding to it or seeing what is in it that is the most interesting in trying to make something out of that. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So here really is my last question. That's so fascinating. You are the first performer that I've had on the podcast Yay! and you're performing tonight. Yes. <laughs> and so like, talk about that. Like how do you feel right now? I just think that's a really different space or like it's a really different thing that I can,
3: I can't quite mm-hmm. imagine
2: compared to most people yeah. that I'm talking to.
3: It's like going into work at this point. Mm. I mean, there's certain things that I have to do, of course, but it's really just like I know my schedule. It's because I think previously I've always been freelance. I've never had to be anywhere consistently like multiple days a week at the exact same time. It's always been very fluid and flexible. So this is just like a new thing where I'm really treating it like I need to make sure I get enough sleep, go into work set up I give myself an hour and a half before I start performing to just kind of like go there steam my costumes get ready and get in kind of the mind space but yeah I'm it's today's kind of a nice day talking to you my friend Lauren is in town so I'm going to hang out with her get some food it's just kind of a relaxed day I try not to like go too over overboard on Mm. performance days I think that in the future, I
2: should not go to therapy before I record a commonplace episode. <laughs> I do not think that should be part of my routine next time. I'm learning that. You um, should interview your therapist. Oh my on God. The next episode. Well, thank cool. you. Thanks. Hi, Christine. Hi, Rachel. So I wanted to start off by asking you if there was anything that surprised you um, when you listened to the conversation I had with Allison or anything you particularly
0: uh, liked or wanted to talk about. Sure yeah i I really loved what you both said about collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. i I'm in the middle of doing some final editing on, on my own manuscript, and I do find that it can be very lonely doing this work alone um and it's filled with a lot of anxiety and pressure um of course and I think of course like collaborative work can can be stressful and introduce a lot of new challenges but at the same time those challenges can be shared and, and the hurdles in front of you as artists can be shared and uh, I really encouraged me to sort of reconsider a lot of ways that I wanted to collaborate on projects like both poetry-based and and non-poetry-based so um That I thought was really exciting. And then thinking about the way like Allison gushed about being able to connect with her audience members, Mm. um, I felt a little sad that we can't really have like our our commonplace audience like here with us in any immediate way. Um, Though, of course, like I'm really appreciative of all the ways that like our listeners get in touch with us on social media, et cetera. Um, But I came to the conclusion that we need to do more live events.
2: Oh, Yes. I, I'm very excited about that idea. Um, can we talk about the format of this episode? I feel like uh, the, the story of the, the change in format for this episode is almost as interesting to me as the conversation that I had with Allison, and it comes right out of that conversation. Yeah, well, you had a
0: big aha moment, right? Yes.
2: You want to talk about that? Yes. Okay, so I had the conversation with Allison, which everybody just heard, assuming they stayed listening, Um, and uh, we had planned to have the uh, conversation between us on the phone and then go right into the conversation with Allison, and so after I recorded with her, my, my experience of recording with her was... Fantastic, I mean I just it, it was it was a great conversation she 's a lovely, warm, enthusiastic person. She gave me some practical advice about my own uh, upcoming audio project, and then also the conversation what like elicited all of these uh, fascinating comparisons in my mind between what she 's doing and what i 'm doing how to Um, continue to make work that feels vulnerable, but maybe protect myself in some of the ways that her process or her relationship to autobiography protects her and mine doesn't, or like ways that not only can the podcast be more immersive and responsive, but how can my own poetry be more immersive and responsive? Um, so all of that was happening during the conversation and I kept thinking, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be a great episode. And then when I described it to you and the other commonplace, um, members of the team, uh, I, I started to describe it and in worried or potentially negative terms. Like I was like, I'm worried it's boring. I'm worried it's just two people talking. I'm worried it doesn't make sense. I'm worried it has no form. And you were sort of responding before you heard it, saying um, like, well, isn't that kind of what Commonplace is like? And isn't that what podcasts with people talking is like? So I was trying to really investigate this feeling of worry that I had after the episode. And um, in order to explain the aha moment, I have to explain something else, um, which is that over the summer, I read this book called Out on the Wire by Jessica Abel. And it, like Allison's work, like all this stuff we're talking about, it's a little hard to describe because it's a, um, it's a comic book. Um, it's like a graphic nonfiction book about um, podcasts and um, radio. The subtitle is the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio. And it's kind of about how you tell stories in a compelling fashion um, on the radio or in podcasts or audio. And through Jessica Abel's comics, um, we learn that Ira Glass, for example, thinks that um, uh, podcasts are a very didactic medium. Um, and that they require a lot of signposting and framing. Like, so you have to tell a story that has all this suspense, like what happened and what happened next and what happened next. But you have to also include a lot of um, signposting and framing that you wouldn't normally include in a novel in order to tell the listener what the story means and, in a way, like why it's important. And I remember when I read the book over the summer being really interested in that, but also feeling like, well, that is the opposite of what I do in poems. And that's the opposite what I of, of what Commonplace is about. Like, I have these conversations where I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what we're going to talk about. And that's the fun of it for me. That's the discovery. That's the
0: meaningful part. Okay. So come back to You don't to even this. know sometimes how long it's going to be,
3: right? Sometimes.
2: Right. I have no idea. So I, I, I think of the podcast as this like experimental f- sort of formless form in which anything can happen. Okay. But then I realized, oh, that's not actually what Commonplace is doing. And the reason that I'm so worried about this episode and this conversation is because the decision to not have what has become a kind of tradition for Commonplace, this intro in which I sort of say how I know the person and I give some context um, to, to the person's work and then I talk about the episode that people are about to hear and I say, oh, this, is, this you know really stood out for me or this is what it made me think of. I'm basically framing and signposting in that intro. And I couldn't imagine listening to the conversation between me and Allison without that, and that was like a big epiphany for me. So we had a choice then: we could kind of do a traditional intro, um, or we could do what we did end up doing, which was kind of having um, an in media res sort of entry into the the podcast and sort of trust the listener that maybe they've been with us so long that they'll know to just trust us, uh, in terms of like, okay, this is going to be interesting. You're going to figure out what's going on. And then at about 10 minutes in, I do jump in and say, you know, okay, so just to make sure, you know, um, and we had a lot of discussion, uh, between the different commonplace team members, like whether 10 minutes in was too long to wait for that kind of reassurance and clarification, whether we needed that at all um, and how it was going to feel to have what we're doing now come at the end rather than at the
1: beginning.
0: Right. Yeah. And I I think I advocated for the in res, especially be, because of what you're talking about, this idea of trust that is, you know, super central to the conversation you had with Allison. Um, she talks about having folks you know, trust their friends when her their friends say, you have to go to the show. I can't really tell you what it is, but you just have to trust me and go to it. Right. That's one level. And then the other level of like her people not knowing and sort of just trusting her in the journey of say something bunny. that like, they're going to be okay. And like, even though they have a script in front of them, there isn't nothing that bad will happen to them. Right. So that, that, that sort of, I think like thinking of that made me feel like this is a good time for us to explore The trust of of our own listeners. Absolutely. And I guess we
2: won't really know until we hear from listeners whether this choice to basically enact uh, what we felt was the central theme in the conversation of unknowingness um, and in media res, like to enact that in the podcast itself as much as possible, whether that was effective and interesting and, you know, whether they liked it or whether it's not
0: a formal choice that translates well from uh, performance art to podcast. Yeah, Um, but either way, I think it's exciting. We took a risk and I hope our listeners agree. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, and there's one other thing I wanted to say about that, which is that I recorded what's going to be our first sort of like special episode in the translation series Um, while I was working on editing the conversation with Allison. And for the translation series, uh, we're also going to experiment uh, with the form of it. But I think it's going to be a a completely fabulous episode. And um, again, you know, if listeners hate it, they'll tell us. But I'm really excited about all of these experiments that we're doing with the form of the podcast, the format of it. And and and
0: seeing what the effects are. Me too. Yeah. Okay, so we do the businessy stuff. I guess we can do the businessy stuff. All right. Uh, listeners should visit commonpodcast.com for links to the people and things Allison and Rachel talk about and to sign up for the newsletter and of course to become a patron of the show. We do still need patrons so please become one. Uh, and patrons uh, will be entered in a raffle that includes copies of *Passing for Human*, which is a graphic novel by Leanne Fink, courtesy of Random House. Copies of *Sarah Berman's Closet* by Myra Kalman and Alex Kalman, uh, courtesy of Harper Collins. And uh, one patron will get a pair of tickets to a future showing of *Say Something*, Bunny, in New York. Awesome.
2: And I just want to thank you, especially Christine, for bringing Allison into my life and to bringing her onto Commonplace, and then for a like a lot of hand-holding that you did with me during this episode. And I, I'm surprised sometimes at how much uh, worry uh, these kinds of changes and experiments bring up for me, even though I'm really committed to them. So all Commonplace episodes are. Uh, absolutely an act of collaboration but this one the collaboration was even more uh, palpable to me so thank you so i just really want to thank you so much christine and of course everyone on the commonplace team nicholas Fuenzalita, becca de gregorio doreen wang has just joined our team we're super excited about that daniel schiffman and music that you hear at the end by moses zucker Gorin.
0: No, well, thank you. Um, yeah, we have a great team. I will say that. And I, I am also super appreciative of everything they've done to make this episode a reality. And of course, to Allison, a longtime friend and just a wonderful artist um, for bringing such cool art into the world and being a good human.